This is the Maverick Minister Deranged Bible Stories podcast series. Hello, I'm Mike Davis, and welcome to the Great Heroes of Israel collection of the Deranged Bible Stories podcast series. I'm your host for this and all of the episodes in this series. If you've listened to any of the other episodes, then you might remember that these stories are based on my deranged thoughts regarding certain readings from the Jewish and Christian scriptures. This episode continues a collection of stories about some of the great heroes of ancient Israel and my thoughts about what some of their spiritual experiences may have been like. Please be reminded that these stories in no way claim divine inspiration, nor do they seek to demean the writings in the Bible. I hope that you enjoy this one, and thanks for listening. The Great Heroes of Israel Collection Number 4. This story is based on chapter 11 of the second book of Samuel in the Hebrew Scriptures. It tells about how David, the second and greatest king of Israel, got himself entangled in a pretty thorny situation with a woman named Bathsheba, and how he secretly tried to cover it up. It also tells about how his cover-up backfired and made everything worse, and how God laid out for David the harsh realities and the long-term consequences of his really unscrupulous decisions and actions. Here is my deranged thought. David was a guy who had it all. He had money, power, a great job. He had seven wives, a nice family, good looks, talent, etc., etc., etc. Unfortunately, even with all that, David chose to do a series of things that broke almost every rule of honesty, decency, and good sense. And this pretty well fouled up his family, his nation, and the rest of his life. Why? What if anything at all was going on in his mind? How could he go from being the greatest and most respected guy around to becoming a convicted adulterer, a de facto cold-blooded murderer, and a big liar within a very short period of time? Unfortunately, this is not just David's story. It's the story of far too many people even in our day and time. I have to wonder if there's something in the human psyche that just shuts down the ability to think about the consequences and impact that our actions will have on us and on other people. Do people even care when they're in this mindset? Just what causes people to make these kinds of decisions? David the King, David the Man, David the Schmuck. It was springtime in Palestine. That was a time when kings like David, king of Israel, generally went off to war. No one is really sure why kings and armies decided that they needed to fight in the springtime, but they just did. Maybe it was because the weather had warmed up and camping out was more pleasant. Or maybe all the guys were just restless and felt they needed to assert themselves. Or maybe there was just too much testosterone. Who knows? The fact is, it was time for Israel to go out and kick some Ammonite butt. So David, the great king of Israel, sent out his armies. But for some reason, 
This time, David didn't go along. Instead, he stayed at home in the palace in Jerusalem. Oh no, David was not a wimp. In fact, he was the greatest warrior Israel had ever known. He was a great military leader and had a wonderful reputation as a general who didn't lose a battle. No one knows why he didn't go that year. He could have felt hopelessly trapped in a lifestyle that seemed empty and inauthentic. He could have felt acutely aware of time and life passing him by. He could have felt a desperate need to grasp at any chance for vitality and pleasure. Or he could have just been having a midlife crisis. Regardless, one afternoon while his army was out preparing to engage the Ammonite, King David was walking around on the sun deck of his palace. It was a pretty nice view. He could see the whole city. As he was gazing at the skyline, he looked to the east and saw a woman sunbathing on the roof of the building next door, and he was taken with her beauty and said to himself, Va, 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 voom, what a babe! And so he called his servant and said to him, Go next door, find out who the woman with the great suntan is over there on that roof, and invite her over to the palace for a drink. And his servant went. When the servant returned to the king, he said, Uh, I got some good news and some bad news. So what would you like to hear first? And David said, What a question! Don't be a putz! Give me the good news first. And the servant said, Uh, first, she's Jewish. Her name is Bathsheba. She's got a lot more great stuff than just a tan, too. And she'll be here at four o'clock. And David said, So, now what's the bad news? And the servant spoke again. Uh, she's married to a soldier named Uriah. He's six foot six. He's an officer in your army, and he's a Hittite. And David said to himself, Oy vey, this could be a problem. And so David thought about what to do. He considered his options. Since her husband Uriah was out of town preparing his men to do battle with the Ammonites, David decided that Bathsheba should come over to the palace and at least have a drink. What could it hurt? So she came over, and they had drinks. Then they had dinner. And before you know it, she and the king had gotten to know each other. Very well. Intimately. In the biblical sense. And about eight weeks later, she sent a message to the great king of Israel which said, when Father's Day comes again next year, it's going to have a whole new meaning for you. And David said to himself, Oi, hey, this is a problem. But David, who was resourceful and a man of quick thinking, immediately sent word to Uriah the Hittite, husband of Bathsheba, to come home and give him a report about the state of the army in the field. This Uriah did. And when Uriah arrived, David thought to himself, Oy vey, it looks like I've dodged that arrow. Whew. But there was a complication. After Uriah made his report, he went home. But he wouldn't go into the house to spend any time with his wife Bathsheba. While he was in town, he ate his combat rations and slept each night in a tent in the front yard. David heard about this and had Uriah report to him at the palace again. David looked at Uriah and said, have you lost your mind? What's the matter with you? 
You've been out in the field for months and you come home and sleep in a tent on your lawn? Listen, this is an order from your commander-in-chief. Go home right now. Have a good home-cooked meal. Take a hot bath. Relax. Have a drink. And for God's sake, spend some time with your wife. For it is written that a man who sleeps on the lawn while his wife sleeps in the house will be counted among those who have lost their marbles. But Uriah said to the king, Sir, I'm a soldier. Sir, I go where my men go. Sir, I can't just enjoy the fruits of wedded bliss while my men are sleeping on the hard ground. Sir, I must do what I must do. It's the soldier's code. Sir. And King David said to himself, I fail. So David saluted Uriah and sent him back to the lawn in front of his house. Then David began to worry in earnest. What to do? 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 Then a thought came to him. There was only one thing to do. So the mighty king sent Uriah back to the battle and made arrangements that he might never come home from the war again. Uriah was given a heroic funeral and... After an appropriate time of mourning, David took his widow Bathsheba to be one of his wives. After all, he only had seven of them already. What's another one? After the marriage, David felt bad about what happened to Uriah. But he reasoned that it was for the greater good, since this avoided a political scandal which at this particular time could have compromised national security. It really was his own fault anyway, thought David. After all, Uriah had the opportunity to avoid all of this when he was home, but he blew it. So he really brought this on himself. Well, at least now all of this mess was cleared up. The king could finally begin to put it behind him, relax, and take his first deep breath in months. It was at this time that the prophet Nathan, who was a mighty man of God and a pretty sharp fellow, came into the palace of the king and said to him, So, your majesty, I'd like to tell you a little story. And David smiled and replied, Sure, Nate, I love stories, especially yours. Okay, boss, said Nathan. The story goes like this. Once upon a time, there were these two men. One was a big-time sheep and goat rancher with flocks and hides and plenty of capital for future improvement and expansion. And the other? was a man who was kind of blue-collar. He had just one little lamb. The blue-collar man treated that lamb more like a dachshund than like a possible dinner. In fact, the lamb was such a part of the family that it ate at the table and slept at the foot of the kids' beds. So, one day, the big-time rancher stole the one little lamb from the other man and turned it into a dinner for a business partner. Oh, no, said David. That's terrible. Nathan went on. Dave, this is one of those stories where the listener gets to choose the ending. So, what do you think should happen? And the anger of the king was kindled against the rancher in the story, and the blood rushed to his head, and his ears turned purple, and he spoke in a great voice. The bum ought to be taken out and shot. Why, if I could get my hands on him, why, I'd... Who is this greedy, thieving slob anyway? And Nathan the prophet smiled at the king and answered, Who is this greedy, thieving slob? 
When you shave tomorrow morning, take a good look in the mirror, and you'll find him. And David said to himself, Oy vey, what a mess! And the Lord God said to David, You have no idea yet. So Nathan the prophet called David out in front of God and everybody else who was in the palace throne room. He made it clear that David was an adulterer with Bathsheba and the murderer of Uriah the Hittite. Not to mention that he was a big liar. Now, you might think that David would have tried to take out Nathan as well. After all, he was the king, and kings and politicians can get away with a lot of bad stuff. But that wasn't what David did. In fact, David didn't really have time to do or say much of anything before God started talking. Dave, I made you king of all Israel. I saved you from destruction time after time after time. I gave you all that you see around you, your palace, your wives, your children, your wealth, your strength, and your health. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. But you didn't ask me. You didn't confide in me. You didn't try to let me help you with whatever was bothering you. You just took everything into your own hands, so to speak. You decided to play God. And now, look what's happened. David opened his mouth to speak, but God cut him off and said, Not yet. Don't you say anything yet. I'm not finished with you. What you've done doesn't just affect you. What you've done affects your family, your people, and this entire nation. You used unsuspecting men to murder Uriah in a war. So now war will never leave you, or your family, or this nation, and that is all on you. Understand, this is not my punishment. I'm not doing this to you. You've done it to yourself and to everyone else. David, you've set an example of dishonesty and manipulation that is now even imprinted on the minds and hearts of your own children. Do you think that even you will be safe from their self-focused ambition and their willingness to use what you have taught them against you? The difference will be that you try to do everything in secret. They won't bother. They'll do it all in broad daylight. What were you thinking? David didn't reply. Now, David, said God, say something now. David, with his head in his hand, said, Lord, I have no excuses. You're right. I have no one to blame but myself. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against my family. I've sinned against my nation. I deserve to die. And God spoke again. Oh, no, David, you won't die. Death would be too easy. You don't get to escape all of this. You have to live with it now. And as for what you deserve, it's lucky for you and for all of humanity that I never give anyone what they really deserve. In fact, I even forgive you for all you've done. Believe it or not, my love for you remains as strong and genuine as ever. That's because I don't ever change who I am. But your life is changed for all time and not for the better. You're going to struggle with so much that could have been avoided. What you've set into motion in your own life, in your family, and in this nation can't be stopped, not even by me. But looking backward at what was is not as important now as looking closely at what is and what can be as your life goes forward. None of it's going to be easy, but it will be possible for you to salvage the kingdom and rebuild some kind of tolerable existence going forward. 
That is, if you are willing to stop being a fool and work at being the person you were created to be. Just remember, regardless of what you've done, I am and always will be here with you, just as I have always been to guide you and to care for you. Going forward, you might want to consult me before you make any other major stupid decisions. So, David, do you have anything else to say? David just looked up with tears in his eyes. There was nothing left to say. So, what's the spiritual insight in this story? Well, there's a word in the English language that we don't generally use very much or like to include in polite conversation. In fact, that word is not something most of us even like to think about, much less discuss. It tends to be relegated to questionable TV evangelists, religious fanatics, bad sermons, and Bible quotes. And for the most part, we tend to dismiss it as an anachronistic idea that has little or no relevance to us or life in our day and time. The word is sin. Like I said, it's one of those religious words that we don't really see as having much of a relevant connection in our lives. After all, we're not sinners. We're not bad people at heart. And while we might do some things that aren't exactly moral sometimes, that doesn't make us depraved or corrupt. But this story of David is all about that word, sin. And if we look at what the word really means, rather than what we may have heard in a negative religious context, we might find it to be a lot more relevant to our lives than we ever thought possible. So, to understand sin a little better, it might be helpful to look at it in a different context than just total depravity and corruption. You see, Thomas Aquinas, who was a great medieval theologian, explained sin by saying that even from birth, we have a strong tendency to become extremely self-centered. Now, this extreme self-centeredness, which he called sin, pretty much shuts down any capacity in our thinking for relationship, empathy, compassion, kindness, patience, self-control, and or love. But this extreme self-centeredness, sin, does give us the illusion of being invincible and in control of our lives. It fills us with an overwhelming drive to focus on getting what we want when we want it. And... It convinces us that whatever we do, it's justifiable no matter what the negative consequences are that it has on us or others. He also threw in that sin is able to convince us that using and abusing others for our own enjoyment and desires, regardless of what happens to him, her, or them, is okay. My summation of Mr. Aquinas' definition is this. Like in the story about King David, sin is destructive. It can destroy all kinds of relationships. It can destroy other people's lives. But most heartbreaking, it can ultimately destroy us. Sin, left unchecked, destroys our ability to relate to other people, to God, to the universe, and to ourselves, which, like David in the story, ultimately leaves us lost and alone. So, can you think of any people or situations in your own life or in our day and time that might have encountered or been influenced by sin? I sure can, including myself.
but on a much smaller scale than David. So what do we do about this sin business? A friend of mine who is a herpetologist and handles poisonous snakes to make antivenom once told me that sin is like picking up a poisonous snake. He said, if you know how, it's pretty easy to do it without getting bitten. Not only that, he said, that the experience of holding the snake is pretty exciting and makes you feel invincible while you are holding it. The downside is that at some point you have to put it down, and that's the hard part to do without getting bitten. He also stressed that the longer you hold on to the snake, the higher your percentage of getting bitten becomes. And the more you think about how to do it properly and worry about getting bitten, the more likely you will be. So I asked him, how do you keep from getting bitten by a poisonous snake? He said, that's easy. Just don't pick one up and you don't have to worry. But if you do pick one up, be prepared to get bitten because everybody who handles one eventually does. So what does this little poisonous snake story have to do with how to deal with sin in our lives? Well, Jesus, the Jewish carpenter, used to say at the end of stories like this that he told, those who have ears to hear, let them listen. If that doesn't really make much sense to you, then just substitute sin for snake in the story. 